Hi, everyone. <laughs> My name is Tina. I'm the worship pastor here, and I have the honor and privilege of sharing today's message with you. We are in the second week of our Be Not Afraid series. Um, over the coming weeks, we'll be looking at different moments in time when God explicitly invites people not to be afraid, uh, not to fear. Uh, it, this happens all over the Bible, apparently. Obviously, this is easier said than done, um, but the, the command is clear, the invitation is clear, so we'll be looking at different moments in time where this invitation is made. And today, we'll be looking at what it means to be unafraid in battle. Now, I will be honest with you, people of God. I would never really hold myself out to be someone knowledgeable about what it means to courageously face a battle. And part of that, maybe I'm being hard on myself, uh, but I think I'm not entirely wrong when I understand myself to be a complete wimp in many things. Um, I'm the kid who has like zero endurance. So like I got mostly good grades in my life except for PE because I could never successfully run a mile without like walking a lot to be able to do it. Um, I'm the kid who got asked in seventh grade not to come back to tennis tryouts, please, because I was so bad um, that it just was messing up the numbers. And so <laughs> um, very unfortunate. You know those movies, there's a lot of these where everything goes impossibly bad all of a sudden and the world is ending and there's some apocalyptic event like a zombie invasion or aliens and everyone starts dying, right? But there's always those handful of people who know how to figure it out and they know how, they're wily and they're smart and they can survive against all odds and they carry the movie. They are the opposite of me. I'm the one who's like cowering in a corner knowing that I will immediately be outrun and then like a zombie will eat me right away. It's done. So, like, that's my understanding of me in battle. I'm like, <laughs> I'm not necessarily the right, you know, the, the lead candidate to give this message. That said, despite my many tactical and physical limitations, of which I am well aware, I am not someone completely unfamiliar with battle. Um, many of you know this. I've talked about it from the front before. But I am a litigator by trade. My, I spend most of my working hours representing undocumented immigrants in deportation proceedings before U.S. immigration courts. And before every asylum hearing, my preparation really looks like gearing up for battle. Um, I don't still to this day know why asylum cases should be structured as battles. I don't think they should. But they are. All litigation is adversarial. There's two opposite sides with opposite goals, and the power imbalance between those two sides can be pretty extreme. Usually it's me and my client on Team Immigrant and like the entire US government on the other side. So, you know, the odds are stacked, and I've had to learn some battle tactics. I've had to, to learn and train and get savvy. I've had to anticipate the opposing side's next move, think on my feet, make quick pivots, and like, I, I got tons of like last minute delay tactics to try to stave off like inevitable bad things. Um, and I've gotten pretty good at it over the past like five years in a row doing this kind of work. And I've seen some, some pretty extraordinary victories against impossible odds. And I would be lying if I didn't tell you that some of those victories had something to do with the skills I have learned in battle. But I will also be honest with you that every once in a while, aka all of the time, there comes a moment in battle work when skills and strategy are not enough. 
when the forces on the other side, no matter how awesome you can try to be, completely overwhelm all of my abilities to fight them off. And in these tipping point moments, all my competence, all my capability, all my strategies suddenly become utterly meaningless. And from one moment to the next, I regularly find myself at a complete loss to stop really, really bad things from happening. And sometimes I can feel this way, not just in a specific moment or right before a particular trial, but for stretches of life. And during these times, I have like a, a habit where I can be found, Josh can attest to this, like walking around the house just spontaneously muttering, oh God, oh God, oh God. Like, Jesus, help me, I need you. Um, these unsophisticated, unput-together prayers that come forth from me in seasons of battle. And perhaps the experience of complete helplessness is not our ideal picture of what we think it means to be fearless in the face of battle. But what I think we see from the countercultural kingdom story of God is that true fearlessness in battle sometimes looks absolutely nothing like strategy or expertise and everything like complete dependence. So the hero of today's Bible text is, all, is someone who knew clearly his limits in battle and who regularly had a habit of asking God for help. Uh, the moment of do not fear invitation we're looking at today is taken from the book of 2 Chronicles. Um, Paige Turner, that one, actually. Uh, it's an ancient account of the many, many kings of Judah. And today we're looking at the story of King Jehoshaphat. We will call him King Jay for ease of reference. So <laughs> the facts about King Jay can be found um, his stories in 2 Chronicles chapter 17 through 21. It's a lot of chapters. It's a lot of stories. And I will just summarize some key facts. One, uh, King Jay was about 35 years old when he became king, an excellent and very mature age, I might add. Uh, he's known as being, on the whole, one of the good ones, actually. There were some bad ones. It got pretty bad. Um, but he's introduced in the scripture with this. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the ways of his father David before him. His heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord. Jay helped purge the idols of the land in a time of profound idolatry and confusion. He sent teachers to different parts of the land to instruct and draw the people of Judah back to the Lord. He's repeatedly described as insisting on consulting God before taking any action, as someone who's not satisfied until he's heard from God about what to do. Now, I have to be fair and say, in the familiar attrition of every single other person in the whole Bible, his record is also not flawless. Um, notwithstanding his devotion to God, throughout the story, he makes all the time, like, multiple stupid alliances with really stupid people, and then it goes really badly, so his record is full of failures. Um, hopefully these failures make him more relatable and not just less reliable for us to learn from. I mean, I feel this way. So he's like a fellow hot mess in some ways, but he's also an example of how we can do this life. Um, imperfect though he may be, at his core, Jay... It shows up in the world um, as somebody who seeks after God, and it makes a difference in his life. So we're going to pick up his story on the eve of a massive and terrifying battle. Um, this isn't one of the stupid fights that he himself got himself into. It's a fight that picked him. It's a battle not just against one nation, but multiple nations at once. This is in chapter 20, starting at the beginning, verse 1. The Moabites and Ammonites 
with some of the Meunites, came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It's already almost here, paraphrasing. Um, most of us here have never been in charge of any army or fought in a war. Perhaps some of us have. But we can all probably relate to this feeling at some point in our lives. The feeling of attack, of an advancing enemy, people, group of people, situation, force, institution, societal power, um, that seems very much poised to win. An unavoidable battle, a fight you didn't pick. It's a familiar experience for us if we pause and think about it. And it is terrifying. Our attackers in this life aren't always so visible as this advancing army against King Jay. Maybe for you, it's a recent diagnosis with no quick fix in sight. Or, sometimes even worse, health troubles that evade diagnosis altogether. Just eat away at your everyday life and they leave you at a total loss for what the heck to do about it. Maybe it's a person. Sometimes it's an actual enemy, but I feel like most times it's somebody who was once really close to you, who turns against you in a visceral way that threatens to destroy every shred of safety you once felt in their presence, and they just won't stop, it feels like, invading your life. For those of us on the underside of a societal power imbalance, whether undocumented immigrants, people who are poor, those with a criminal record, those without homes, those who are trans, those who are all of the above. When all of American society feels permanently positioned against you in this adversarial posture, these unchosen battles can feel like the constant backdrop of life. They can come to head in specific crisis moments, like eviction orders or arrest warrants or violent assault. But even after the worst of the battle is over, everything can feel like there's no way you're going to be able to win this war. So how am I supposed to keep showing up to these battles? The impact on us of these battles cannot be overstated. They are objectively terrifying, especially when the sides aren't evenly matched and our strategy and skill just runs out. These battles can crush our spirit, cause us to despair, destroy our abilities to fight back, and often, not exaggerating, they put our very survival on the line. These are matters of life and death. So how in the world are we supposed to relate to God's invitation to not fear in this context, in the face of a battle? King Jay's approach to this particular battle in ancient Judah, I think, gives us a unique and beautiful window into what it could look like to respond to God's invitation not to fear in the face of battle. I am someone who loves to condense information into three points. I have done so. Um, first, we are invited to admit our powerlessness. Second, we are invited to stand firm and anticipate God's deliverance. And third, we are invited to worship. And we will dive into these three in turn. Hopefully it will all be very clear to you. But before we do so, I would love to pray. Dear God, God who is more powerful than we are, we turn to you for wisdom, guidance, and the speech that gives life. Would you move in us and speak to us today? Show us something true of us and of you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so first, there's an invitation in this story 
to admit our powerlessness, to admit it to one another and to admit it to God. We'll pick up where we left off in the text at verse 3. Remember, King Jay has just gotten this bad news um, of the invading army. I give up. Um, And we pick up the story at verse 3. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, as he was wont to do, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard, and he spoke. Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. There's a dot, 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 because he goes on to declare true things about who God is, what God has done. At this point, it really feels like he is poised to give, like, this is, this is the next step. Here's what we're going to do. He's, he's building up the crowd. He's building up faith. He's already sought the Lord. Surely there is a really good conclusion to this public address to the entire people. It ends with this. Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face the vast army that is attacking us. We don't know what to do. But our, our eyes are on you. The end. Thus concludes his public address to the entire people. Um, With this inspiring message, we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us, and we do not know what to do. This is not really the kind of pep talk that you're ideally looking for from like a commander in chief. Uh, He is very plainly and very transparently naming out loud his utter and complete powerlessness in light of what is happening. For us humans, at least in my personal experience, it takes us a lot to get to this point where we're willing to do this sort of thing in public. I feel like Americans are the worst at this. In a lot of ways, we'd like rather die than admit weakness. Um, A couple, a few years ago, my dad had a whole heart attack. Heart attacks are deadly, they're bad. Luckily, this one wasn't. The doctors told him he had to stay in the hospital for at least a few days and that he could not go back to work until enough time has passed for him to be fully healed. I am not a doctor, but I think this is a reasonable set of instructions after a heart attack. My father, however, does some pretty intense work, and he doesn't take that work lightly. His day job is as a cancer doctor, meaning he manages other people's life or death battles every day that he's at the hospital. So for him to stay in the hospital and stay back from work would be to accept his powerlessness to help all those people because of what he was going through. It'd be to accept his inability to get up and do what his training has uniquely and specially prepared him to do. It would be to admit a kind of weakness that is profoundly uncomfortable and just feels wrong in the face of so much need for leadership. So I wasn't there, but at least according to my mom's version of events, this man basically rips the IV out of his arm and like marches on to work the next morning straight from the hospital as if he hadn't just had a heart attack. He's still at it. We're good. My dad's alive. We are well. And I don't tell the story to show, throw shade at my father, but uh, just as a reminder of just how reluctant we can be to admit and embrace it when the battle is actually out of our hands, actually outside of our abilities, and to let ourselves come to terms with our own powerlessness. We don't want to do it. King Jay, however, goes immediately there. His Right away response to the news of impending doom is two parts. Did you catch this? The first is he names all the ways that God is powerful. 
And then he plainly says, in full view of everyone who is counting on him, that he has no power whatsoever to fight this thing. Fearlessness in the face of battle has to start here. Confession that God is the powerful one and that we have no clue what we're doing. So what does this mean for us? Well, I have some thoughts and questions for us to think about. Are there any battles that you're facing? What battles are staring you down right now? And what are they? Are you anxious and afraid about them? Perhaps even more afraid than you've been willing to admit or say out loud. And where are you tempted to double down on your own skill and strategy as like the only possible way forward rather than naming your powerlessness? Might God be inviting you to let go of your strategies, name God's strength, and speak out loud your powerlessness as an act of faith? What's holding you back from embracing that powerless in view of others? Might you possibly even give it a try today? At the end of every Sunday service, we conclude our service with... um, individual prayer ministry. There's a team of prayer ministers who line up on the side and they're there ready to pray for you. Honestly, I think that's a great opportunity to practice just saying that you are powerless in front of another person and letting them bear witness to that with you. There's something meaningful about that. So one battle tactic, say you don't have any idea what you're doing and name your powerless. The second is to stand firm and witness deliverance. As soon as Jay publicly confesses his and his people's powerlessness, God speaks. Pick up where we left off. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Maniah, a Levite, descendant of Asaph, as he stood in the assembly. And he says, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. For the battle is not yours, but God's. How many of you have heard this? It's beautiful. Tomorrow, march down against them. They'll be climbing up by the Pass of Ziz, and you'll find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out and face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Do not be afraid or discouraged, it says, for the battle is not yours but God's. They're instructed to stand firm, see the deliverance the Lord will give you. They're beautiful words. If you, like, step back and think about it, God is giving a very strange battle plan here. The people of God are supposed to show up, stand firm, and watch. Watch what God will do. I mean, God is speaking directly through this prophet. He could have said any number of things in this moment. He could have, for one, given clear instructions on just how to, not just how to find the enemy, but how to defeat the enemy. He could have spelled it out, told them what was going to happen and how he was going to deliver them, walk them through how they were supposed to act and react to whatever goes down. But that's not the instruction. At least for this battle, the people's job wasn't to crush, to destroy, to outwit, or launch the perfect counterattack. In fact, God very clearly told them that this wasn't even their fight at all. The battle's not yours, but God's. All they were supposed to do was show up and stand firm. On the one hand, 
this may not feel entirely helpful for assuaging fear. I think one of the scariest things about battle seasons can be the loss of control. It's not knowing what's going to happen and not knowing what we're supposed to do to fix it. God's instructions here, uh, while generally encouraging, are wildly unspecific. In a nutshell, he's saying, guys, I got this. Just show up and you'll see. And I feel like God's instructions end up being like this a lot in the Bible, like mad cryptic. Abraham, get up, pack all your possessions and your family and go to a place I'll show you later. Or disciples, go two by two into the surrounding towns. Bring absolutely nothing with you and watch what happens. Oh, and when they completely reject you, don't worry about it. Just dust the, dust the you know, shake the dust off your feet and keep it pushing. It's going to be great. Or, hey, Ananias, there's this dude named Saul and he's about to show up to your house. Actually, his name is Paul now. But yes, it is definitely the same guy who's trying to murder all of the Christians, which you are one. When he shows up, pray for him and watch what happens. No, I will not be providing any more information. Goodbye. This is like how God interacts with people sometimes. But especially in a high-stakes, life-or-death battle moment like this one, the general reassurance of, hey, guys, I got this. You just have to keep showing up is only truly comforting if you believe that God is actually trustworthy. And some of us, because life, are tempted to forget that God is truly, deeply trustworthy. But I am begging you, church, do not lose sight of that. Because if you do, you're going to completely miss the extraordinarily good news that is in this message from God. Because God is trustworthy. God is good. And God is more powerful than we realize. And God loves us with a fierce and profound love. Now, I know it's hard to just believe that out of the blue. Because life is hard. But if you ever need to remind yourself of this, all you have to do is ask other people to tell you their testimony. I know for a fact that this room is full of testimonies. You would not be gathered here in this incredibly hot room on a Sunday afternoon just putting up with each other for no other reason, right? So seriously, I mean it. If you feel like you need some help remembering that you can trust God to show up for you when he says he will, as soon as the service is done, I invite you to turn to your neighbor and ask them, to tell you personally, why do you love God? Ask them, how did they end up making a decision to follow God in the first place? Or ask them to tell you about a time when God delivered them from something or what draws them to seek after God. I can guarantee you that your faith will be stronger after a handful of those conversations because the testimony of those who have witnessed God's deliverance before is a really powerful thing. And it will give you what, some of what you need to get up and keep going, keep showing up. This past week, my home group, Thursday night home group, it's super great, you guys should come, did a sort of spontaneous potluck in Edgewood Park. I showed up late after picking up some mediocre pizza from Domino's, and when I got there, I saw our usual group plus these two women that I had never seen before. We started talking, and it turns out they just randomly ran into Josh and Sinclair at the park and struck up a conversation. And they were like, I like you guys. I'm going to stick around. So they joined us. Um, and one of them sat down next to me, and she just casually mentioned that she had started getting involved in church again um, just recently over the past six months, um, and that she is now following Jesus in ways that she hadn't been before. Now, I had never met this woman in my life, and I don't know what led me to, like, ask her deep personal questions beyond that, but I decided to ask her in that moment, 
well, why? Like, why do, you, why do you follow Jesus? And she just immediately looked me straight in the eyes and answered right away without missing a beat. I was suicidal. I was going to kill myself. If it weren't for Jesus, I wouldn't be here today. He sent my cousin out of the blue to stop me from going through with it, and I have been walking with Jesus ever since. All of my life is so different with him. And her eyes right away fill up with tears, and she smiles this, like, huge, very genuine smile. This was not an abstract idea or theological conviction. This is not some philosophy that saved her life or, like, a distant concept of what faith is supposed to be. This is a tangible real battle that God stepped in and fought on her behalf. And because of that, she trusts him now in a super special way. Guys, we need one another's stories when we're in battle seasons so that we can remember the character of the one we're relying on to fight for us. You can ask any Jesus follower, and perhaps especially those who have gone through really intense battle seasons, why they love God. And you will hear a testimony that reminds you of what is true about our God. That God is good and God is powerful and God is trustworthy. So what that means is, if God is truly trustworthy, these words that the prophet speaks to King Jay on the eve of battle make for very, very good news. The battle is not yours to fight. It doesn't actually depend on you. It's not about you working smarter or figuring out what exactly to do right. It's not exactly about you engaging the battle perfectly, never screwing up or being more battle ready. It's not even about you praying strategically, the right prayers in the right order with the right amount of fervor, which sometimes we can think honestly, like, oh, if only I was a better prayer, then it would not be this way. What if none of it depends on you? then there's a complete release of pressure on your shoulders, at least to figure this out. All you have to do is keep standing. Keep showing up. Keep getting up in the morning. Get dressed, show up, persevere, and trust that God is with you and God will do the fighting for you. Now, I understand that this is actually really hard. To keep going can actually be really hard in times of battle. It's hard to armor up and go to the front lines again and again and again without any knowledge or control about how things are going to go down. And I'll just say, when the battle includes actual depression in the mix, just the act of getting up and showing up can feel like a life or death battle all on its own. But God is saying to us, don't give up. He's saying still to this day, guys, I got this. Just show up and you will see. God is good. God is trustworthy, and he cares for you. So where, what does this mean for all of us? Where do we find ourselves in this? I mean, one thought is, well, where is God inviting you to choose to keep showing up to battle? Not to just show up by default, not to just show up that you have no other option, but to wake up and choose, I will face this down again another day and expect that God is doing something on my behalf. Where are you tempted to forget that God is truly trustworthy. And who could you ask to share their testimony with you? Maybe people come to mind right away. Maybe there's people who you assume are faithful and have seen some things, but you never actually ask them directly, where did you see God in that? How, why do you keep following God after what you've been through? Could you ask them? Maybe like soon, maybe this week, maybe right now. Well, not right now, but like after service today. Um, yeah, could you make a point to ask some people this week to share their God stories with you as a way to remind yourself of who God is? 
So we're invited to admit our powerlessness. We're invited to keep showing up and expect God to show up too. And then the third and final invitation I'll talk about today is the invitation to worship God. When battle day comes, they obey God by showing up to the battlefield with no strategy other than dependence on God's deliverance, just like God tells them. But as they went, they worshiped. Picking up again, verse 18. Jehoshaphat, this is immediately after the prophet delivers this encouraging message. Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. Then some Levites from the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Early in the morning, they left for the desert of Tekoa. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah, and the people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets, and you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. The Ammonites and Moabites rose up against the men from Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. After they finished slaughtering the men from Seir, they helped to destroy one another. The end. (laughs) So this army commander gives two instructions for this fight. One, have faith. And two, let's sing. Sing. To sing thanks to the Lord to declare the endurance of God's love. And there wasn't only one way to go about it, right? Some fell on their faces and bowed down. Some shouted and stood up. Others sang. All of them worshipped with their voices and their bodies choosing to lift up God's identity as greater than their own. Now that's all the word worship really means. Actually, it's taking a posture of submission and honor before God, a way of acknowledging that God is God and we are not. That's what worship is. And the one battle strategy that they chose to take up beyond, I'm going to show up, is worship. Their worship on battle day, I think, strengthened their dependence as they faced off against a much better resourced enemy. Their worship gave them something to do, like a tether to God's promise and deliverance. And as they worshiped, they won. In this case, the invading army inexplicably starts destroying itself. So I don't think the act of worship is just an act of surrender. Like our bowing and our singing and our praising, I actually think it's much more than just like throwing up our hands and being like, Jesus, take the wheel. Um, It is that to some extent. But it's not only that. I actually have come to believe that worship is itself a weapon. It's both. It's surrendering your battle strategy, and it is a battle strategy. It's a weapon of war, and it's powerful. And it's not just in this text that we see this. We see this in the Bible over and over again. Read Judges 7. Gideon versus the Midianites. Gideon's tiny little army walks around, blows a bunch of trumpets, and calls out in a loud voice to God, and the enemy people freak out and start destroying each other. Or read Joshua 6. 
Joshua and the famous Battle of Jericho. Their battle strategy was to walk around in circles, blow some trumpets, and yell out praises to God, and the enemy walls come crumbling down. Or read Acts 16. Paul and Silas are chained up in a Roman prison, and at midnight, while they are singing hymns and praises to God, an earthquake comes and the chains fall off and all the prisoners are set free. So this, I mean, this is clearly a thing. Worship is a battle strategy. It is a sword that we can take up in these impossible fights. One of the contexts where I saw this most vividly was when I took a trip to northern Uganda to a tiny little village called Lukodi. I was there in a mixed group of Americans and Ugandans with the goal of learning and serving alongside a group of particularly battle-weary women. Now, the part of Lukodi we were staying was a nonprofit organization that's like a residential community that was built to support a group of teenage single mothers. And I will say, now this is intense, a warning y'all, but every woman in this part of the village had been forced, essentially forced to have a child by men who did not love them. A good percent of them, good percentage of them were actually kidnapped as children by the infamous Lord's Resistance Army, an unspeakably brutal guerrilla force that relied on child soldiers, satanic rituals literally, and devastated violence to wreak havoc on northern Uganda for years and years and years in the early 2000s. And so many of these women were people who had escaped from that, but before escaping were forced to be child brides of the army commanders, and those children were those guys' kids. So these women, it is an understatement to say that these women have known battle. They were still in the thick of it, most of them having been cut off completely from their family support, many of them with multiple kids under their care and close to zero resources to support them, years of horrific trauma weighing them down. These are just the background facts that I knew before we, like, while we were driving there. Now, I don't know what exactly I was expecting to see in that village the first time I went to visit them, but it certainly wasn't that much singing. Certainly not the kind of singing that I found there. The way they structure things is every single night at 9 p.m., without exception, these ladies gather under this small round thatch roof gazebo for worship. No instruments, just drums and voices. And their worship, y'all, was more vigorous, more forceful, more aggressive, more of a workout than any other context I had experienced. The rhythm is really intense from the beginning. The tone is like aggressive and upbeat. Everybody's dancing. Most of the songs were in the Acholi language. And there was one in particular that caught my ear as they're singing it. So it goes like this. And the way they do it is there's a leader and then everybody responds in unison. So then everybody responds. And then there's this part at the end where one person who's a leader sings this line and then everybody starts doing the same dance. Where they go, and they do another line. So at the end, of course, I'm like, what does that mean? What are y'all doing? And then they're like, oh, yeah, I'll translate it for you. The first part translates to this. Living in this must not separate me from the love of God. Whew. And then the next part is kind of what it looks like. I am stepping on Satan forever. 
And then the last part is, I am kicking Satan forever. <laughs> and so these were battle songs. And so, I mean, I'm asking them to teach me more songs. And as I do so, I'm learning more and more battle songs. One of them even had this, like, shovel movement. And then when I asked them to explain that, they are picking up Satan and throwing him out the window. <laughs> and so it was just... Yeah, these songs were not all triumphant. Some of them were slow. Some of them were, were more like prayers or meditations. But every single one of them, I mean, it was clear that for them, worship was so much more than personal devotion and surrender. Worship was resistance. It was battle strategy. It was a lifeline in the face of impossible challenge leveraged against them. Like these Lukoti women, we too can pick up worship as a weapon in battle. When we are powerless to win because the fight is so stacked against us, we are never powerless to sing. We can sing the strength and triumph of our God over and over against our enemies. We can sing even if we're terrified. We can sing with tears on our faces, with tiredness in our eyes, with none of the answers. We can sing what we know to be true of our God from what we've heard from other people about his deliverance, what other witnesses have told us to be true. And we don't just sing when our battle's over in times of peace. We sing as our battle in resistance to everything that tries to separate us from God's love and steal our joy. And as we sing, God shows up and does his thing. Singing worship songs, I will, disclosure, like it may not solve all your problems. <laughs> it may not even cast out all fear. But as we pick up worship as our weapon of choice in battle, especially as we worship together with others, I genuinely believe we can conquer fear enough to show up and witness God's deliverance. And I, mean, I think we saw the end of the story. Because of God's deliverance and faithfulness, the battle ends in victory. There's plunder, there's harps, there's singing, there's rejoicing, there's trumpets. This story of the battle at Tekoa does have a happy ending. An impossible battle was won. And I will close with this. I do not want us to be naive. Not every battle ends in victory. But there is one last promise I want to leave us with. Our story does end in victory. Our fight, the big war against everything that tries to destroy us, it does end in victory. Even if an individual battle ends in catastrophic failure, because sometimes it does. Even if the battle ends in death and devastation, even when it seems that God has completely failed us and the enemy has won, our struggles, every single one of them, are part of a bigger story. And that story ends in victory. That is a guarantee. Because this life is not all there is. All of human existence has been and will continue to be a war. But eventually, there is a promise that this war will come to an end. That God's kingdom wins that war and all will be made new. This is spelled out in the book of Revelation, the final book of the Bible. We see all sorts of crazy things in that book. But some of the things we see are that um, until the end of the world, there's a struggle between the beast and the kings of the earth on the one hand and the forces of heaven on the other. We see that the beast loses. Come on. <laughs> the dragon is thrown into the abyss. And we see that the God of the universe 
Love incarnate makes his home with us forever, wipes every tear, puts an end to mourning and crying and pain, and makes all things new. And at the end of it all, we see that those who are victorious will inherit all this. That I will be their God, and they will be my children. We hope in a present deliverance, but we also hope in a forever deliverance. In our day-to-day battles, we have to resist and anticipate God's rescue on this side of heaven. But the big, a big part of the faith that allows us to stand firm in our everyday battles is not just the confidence that God's going to deliver us right away. It's that God will be victorious in the end of it all and that we get to participate in that victory. And I think it's important to remember that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that we cling to as believers in the way of Jesus, isn't actually complete until, unless we believe this deep down in our bones. Because we really ultimately can only stand firm in battle because we believe in an eternal victory. That death will be no more. That the deceiving dragon of every evil and corrupt institution that oppresses us and our people will be thrown into a lake of fire that love outlasts every form of violence that is done to us and to our families, that God will make all things new, and that we will enjoy that newness because in relationship with Jesus, we will live forever and reign forever with Jesus in peace and victory. We are tethered to this forever story in the here and now today. And because of this, we get to believe the good news Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours. It's God's. Take up your positions. Stand firm and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Um, Every week during... The Sunday service, there's a team of people who are listening to God as the service is going on to see if God has specific invitations for folks. And so somebody from that team is going to be coming up to give specific invitations and words for folks. This is, again, that opportunity to go and get prayer on the side that you can respond to. Um, In the meantime, I'm going to throw up the uh, summary of the concrete invitations that you have on the table for you to name your powerlessness to God and to another human this week to ask for one person or more to share in a personal way what God's deliverances look like in their life and to choose to pick up worship as your weapon in battle. But before I turn it over to um, more specific invitations from folks who have been praying, I feel like I want to make a particular invitation to anyone here today who is running out of faith, just running out of belief that God would show up, and that running out of faith is making the energy or the ability to show up to the battle lines lower and lower and lower, just like tired. Maybe you feel like you've been You've been trying to do that. You've been showing up to battle every day, been expecting things to look different, and they never do. And so the, the, the faith is low. And I just think if that's you, I want to invite you, not, you don't have to do it in a big flashy way, but even just where you are, to turn. We do this a lot at church where we invite you to sort of turn your palms up, hold your hands out and sort of turn your palms up. With the, it's a posture of expectation, like, 
like you're going to receive a gift, like maybe something will come. Um, but I want to open my hands to receive it. So I just invite you now to turn your palms upward in a, as a physical gesture of expectation. Um, and to just let, let the worship that we're about to engage in, um, the space that you have to engage with God, like let it be an opportunity to remind your soul or invite the spirit to directly remind your soul of what you need to hear. So Holy Spirit, would you come? Holy Spirit, would you minister? Holy Spirit, we believe you, that you are good, that you are mighty, and that we don't always know what we're doing. So come, Lord Jesus. Stir hope back up for those who need it. Stir something new, a foretaste of the newness that you're working, that is a forever newness, Lord. And for the rest of us, I just want to specifically invite us to... Um, Take the opportunity of singing together um, as an opportunity to engage, engage God in battle. Like, even like direct the singing to the enemy that's facing you to remind them, remind yourself of who God truly is.